Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I've got to say, it's my fourth day here on Bloomberg Surveillance, and we've had two Nobel laureates in that period of time. It It speaks wonderfully, (laughs) I think, to the... To the quality of the show, I want to bring in uh, Ed- Edmund Phelps. He's the McVicker Professor of Political Economy at Columbia, also the head of the Center on Capitalism and Society. They awarded the Nobel in 2006 for his analysis of intertemporal trade-offs in macroeconomic policy. Let me kick things off just to, with a bit of news. We got these Fed minutes yesterday. Some uh, intelligence, some insight here into what the, the committee is thinking about inflation. When you look at, at the inflation target today that the Fed... Uh, is wrestling with what? What do you see there? Are, are are they are they making sense to you? What they're trying to do? Uh, well, I, I'd, I'd hate to say yes or no. I'd like to straddle a bit on, <laughs> on that. Um, yeah. uh, they are well-meaning in in being concerned that money remain easy enough to uh, facilitate. Uh, people getting back into the labor force. As, as I'm sure you know, um, participation rates, rate of participation uh, of people in the labor force, employed or unemployed, it has been going down and down and down and down and down for, for four or five decades now and uh, took another bump down uh, with the uh, financial crisis. So the, the Fed is, is very hoping that, that their easy money policy will, will uh, facilitate uh, a flow of these people who are not in the labor force back into it. Uh, but I think that, I think that, that you know, some of that may be possible, but um, it, there's just a mountain of people who have left the labor force and have been out of it for a long time. Participation rates, as, as I said, have been fa- falling for four or five decades, I don't think in the space of a year or two the Fed can unwind that. You've written about the difficulty the Fed faces uh, targeting an unemployment rate and targeting the participation rate at the same time. They can't, they can't have both. Why no, is yeah, that it didn't, so difficult? Uh, it doesn't make any sense to me. I commented on that in, in a Wall Street Journal piece uh, I wrote last month that um, it, it, it's, it's uh, paradoxically, to the extent that they're successful in 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 getting more participation, that's that's going to involve uh, folks who are relatively unemployment prone, and so <clears throat> the the Fed will be raising the measured unemployment rate as they reduce as they increase the right. labor force participation rate. I, I got a, we could go Ned for like two hours here <laughs> on productivity and dynamism. I want to talk to you about a newly minted word which is not in. The Phelps language, which is evidence. We have central banks looking for evidence or data dependency or forward guidance. In your wonderful Nobel Prize speech and memo, 
there's a discussion you have in a footnote about ex post and ex ante. What do central banks do? If you're teaching with the glorious Phelps simplicity, you got your graph paper, your number two pencil, and you're the king of basics, <laughs> can a central bank get out front ex ante, or are they by definition ex post after the fact? Well, I, the Fed has some pretty powerful weapons uh, at its disposal. Uh, it can make a mess of things with those weapons if it's not careful. The question is, to, to what extent can it do good? Uh, after all, markets are pretty clever at, at allocating people, mm -hmm. and, and, and there's usually a fair amount of sense in the way things are, so that the, the, it, the Fed cannot achieve a, a whole lot of good. It can just nudge the economy in the right direction. <clears throat> Uh, but I, I, but I, with regard to the situation right now, I think uh, the the Fed has just about shot its bolts. It right. won't be able to do very much to reduce to 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 increase uh, boost participation, and and uh, and it has to be careful that it that it doesn't feed uh, a speculative collapse I don't want to... in the economy. The thing we have things like commercial housing, commercial real estate. I'm sorry. Commercial real estate prices are, are through the roof. Uh, a lot of people will probably go broke. Uh, so I, I, that kind of thing can be going on that we don't really notice it. A lot of, there's a lot of detail. Uh, all sorts of things can go wrong here and there and, 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 and snowball into um, a financial crisis and, and a recession. So it, the Fed has to be very careful not to push too hard. I don't mean to digress here too much, but we have some breaking news, Tom. It I have a Nobel laureate to my right. <laughs> it is spectacular. The Nobel Prize in Literature 2016 goes to Bob Dylan for having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition. We can get back on track there. <laughs> just no, a it's I, I had to mention that. That to just crossed guys. the wire. This will be, I, the first thing I did, folks, when I saw this news is I sent Ken Felio a single line for the musical outros that we do. Don't think twice. It's, it's all right. Don't. I mean, any, and there could have been 15 other lines on how Mr. Dillon changed our language. We'll talk about this uh, more. Right now, we talk about the changed language of economics with Edmund Phelps of Columbia. Ned, on productivity, tell us your interpretation of technology today. Yeah. Is it our listener's friend or enemy? Oh. Uh, I think it's on 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 the whole, it's our friend, but uh, it, it, it rubs a lot of people the wrong way. I'm sure. Uh, I, I think what happened in the U.S. is that we lost a lot of uh, innovation that used to be going on in the traditional industries, uh, industries that are mostly located uh, in the the heartland of the country, and that brought on the the Rust Belt. And so you, you, innovation was drying up in those traditional industries. At the same time, uh, I, I like to argue that these industries were keeping out newcomers, making it hard for outsiders to innovate in those industries. Enter Silicon Valley. They started creating new industries, mostly capital goods industries, and and that was wonderful for a while. That made up for the loss of innovation in the heartland. 
But the trouble is, so to speak, they've run into diminishing returns. As they keep on grinding out more and more of this uh, techie output, they drive down the prices of, of that stuff. So the contribution to the GDP and the contribution to wage rates is diminishing and diminishing and diminishing. Ned Phelps, thank you so much. A crazy morning. Love to have you. Ned Phelps, thank you so much. And we'll uh, have uh, Professor Phelps back. I would say it's highly likely my chart of the year will be my Phelps chart on the collapse in American productivity. There you go. We're not there to the decision yet, uh, David uh, Agura, but uh, extraordinary. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Continue a conversation we started yesterday with Neil Sterling. We were looking at the health of emerging markets, especially in light of demographic trends. I want to bring in now Alessio DeLongas. He's portfolio manager in the global multi-asset group at Oppenheimer Funds. Alessio, good to have you with us. Good morning. Thank you for me. We were talking about the weight of demographic change on emerging markets. I know that you were overweight on emerging markets when it comes to equities, when it comes to currencies. How concerned are you about what we're seeing in terms of demographics in emerging markets right now? So the demographics picture in, in emerging markets is really uh, heterogeneous, yeah. right? You have uh, a very good, uh, p a much better picture, for example, in Latin America or in India in particular versus um, China and the rest of developed Asia that looks much more like developed markets. So the question there is really um, what's important is to to break down the, the borders, to break down that concept of looking at emerging versus developed. When you invest is really uh, to, not only at the company level, but, uh, but also in terms of the macroeconomic exposures is how uh, each company or economy is really exposed to a diversified set of global forces. So uh, in many ways, you want to avoid companies that are overly dependent on a, demo on a domestic uh, story um, because you don't have, so to speak, business and economic diversification. So, But at the, on a global basis, of course, we know that the only uh, comforting demographic picture comes from certain emerging mm. markets. Um, the overall trend, however, is one on a global basis is one where it's hard to see rising inflationary pressures. I think the, the uh, excess savings picture that is caused by the demographic uh, trends, partially by the demographic trends, um, this overall plentiful uh, savings picture argues for a very low interest rate environment for a very long period of time. It's down in Latin America, and something I heard while I was there is you can assess the health of an economy by how well it's able to weather both the ups uh, and the downs. You look at the weight that low energy prices have had on a lot of these economies for some time. Uh, how well positioned are they in light of that for the next downturn? How much have they sort of changed the trajectory of their economies to move away from relying so heavily on oil and energy side? Unfortunately, they really haven't yet. So uh, a renewed down, meaningful downside uh, move in commodity prices, particularly oil, would would provide additional uh, risks to some of these economies. However, it's the kind of credit shocks 
that we have seen late last year, early this year, does a lot of the cleanup in that sense. I think uh, when you have a major economic shock uh, like what we had six months ago, um, hedging activity and more prudent balance sheet management uh, takes place compared to the somewhat good times where it's it's difficult for from a business purpose to even imagine a type of economic shock like the one we mm. saw in energy prices. So I think lar uh, largely the, the, downs, the worst downside scenario has been uh, addressed, uh, but... Um, have, have these economies uh, reformed and transformed enough to really move away from the classic emerging markets equal commodities uh, trade? Um, I don't think we're there. Um, mm. These countries are still very much dependent on these external shocks. Mm. If our listeners said, I know I'm supposed to be in international stocks, but I'm scared stiff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, how would you respond? Uh, I think that's a mistake. I think uh, look at valuations. I think particularly in emerging markets, valuations are far more compelling than in developed markets. And also, uh, just there is an enormous uh, uh, investable universe that, uh, that is far bigger than your home bias uh, makes you realize. I think particularly in the U.S., there is a very uh, large home bias towards uh, domestic stocks. And um, you just want to be exposed. I, I, to go back to the earlier point, I think the important thing is to be exposed to uh, companies that have global reach, whether they're domiciled mm -hmm. in the U.S. or domiciled in emerging markets. Yeah. It, it, that, that is not relevant. It, it, where are you more internationally exposed? If you own a U.S. company that right. has revenue sources from all over the world or by buying an emerging yeah. market company that is entirely exposed mm -hmm. to, say, India. It, it, we have to think in it, it's, it's a global globalization of your mm -hmm. thinking that has to change. And I'd really note something in the blur of the day, and particularly the Brexit focus, Chinese trade, or lack thereof, Alessio DeLongas with us with Oppenheimer funds, I, you know, it's all export, export, export. Are you just as concerned about the dynamic, the changes of Chinese imports? You're seeing a rise in the uh, sorry, a, a, a decrease in imports, but really, I think what it, what is more concerning is the is the export picture uh, because it it confirms the fact that uh, in the emerging markets growth model is still broken in the sense that yeah. uh, with with slowing global trade, with uh, with lack of demand from from developed markets in particular and even emerging markets in general, you cannot have a recovery for emerging markets right. and China in particular that is still dependent on on export investment. Investments. China and all of Asia, really, the idea, the, the, the next transition is to reduce domestic savings and, and increase the level of domestic consumption to sustain uh, that right. uh, a transition into a different growth I've model. I've heard that for, I'm going to say, 10 years, mm -hmm. and I agree with you with great respect that the urgency is immediate. The trend is ugly. Are they hoping for a cyclical recovery, or would you suggest that these are structural issues of China, not to get back to 25% growth. I mean, that, mm -hmm. we get that. Right. But just to get back to something normal. So with a cyclical, they need to, they need to um, 
to they need a cyclical recovery. However, that is the lever, but that doesn't change the structural trend, right? You, uh, you, you. What's happening in China is the mirror image of the deleveraging that is happening in the developed world. Remember, ten years ago, we were talking about unsustainable consumption in the U.S., in the U.K., unsustainable current account deficits, unsustainable uh, propensity to lever up and consume beyond our means. The mirror image was of that was China capitalizing on that trend. As the healthy trend of deleveraging and, and normalization occurs in the developed world, again, the mirror image of that is the necessity for China to transition and emerging markets in general to transition to a different model of self-dependent growth. Is the, is, is, remember 10 years ago, we kept on talking about the emergence of the, uh, of the emerging markets consumer? right? The consumers from the emerging world. That transition is happening, but it's happening very, very slowly. I look at the, the UN, I see it weakening here over these last few days, the government seemingly content to let that happen. What does that tell us about the attitude of the Chinese government right now toward uh, its economy? Is it letting the currency float? Uh, is it pursuing a path of openness that it says it's going to pursue? The currency is one of the only levers, really, that they have left. I think the the uh, the need for a gradual depreciation of the currency continues to be there, and also the willingness to do that. I think they they are not resisting that process, but for them, what is paramount is to control the volatility, control the sentiment that is associated to the currency. The currency is the biggest barometer of sentiment in that market and globally in general, right? So. Um, it's just a very difficult transition and a very gradual one. And for them, it's paramount to manage the, the, the extremes of that transition. We talked about the weight of, of commodities on a lot of these economies. Let's talk a little bit about political risk. We're certainly seeing that play out uh, in South Africa right now. Uh, over the last few months, we were seeing it play out in, in Brazil uh, as well. Has that become the new downside risk? Is, is political risk now the thing that's the greatest weight on these emerging market economies? Uh, I, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't be too uh, concerned about it. I think what we have seen in Turkey was definitely uh, concerning. Yes. What we're seeing in South Africa is uh, disappointing, but unfortunately, is emerging markets business as usual, right? So, uh, what I think is more concerning, to be honest, is the fact that developed markets are converging to that political uncertainty. Now, we're not talking about jailing finance ministers or or coups, but. It, on a global scale, I think what is more concerning is the level of political uncertainty and economic policy uncertainty that we're seeing in the Eurozone, in the UK. Obviously, Brexit there is part of the nexus, but also in the United States. Alessio DeLongas, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. lucky. You get Stan Colander with you amid the political madness where maybe we can actually talk about our fiscal policy. But first, as we're doing through the morning, Stanley Colander on Bob Dylan. I'm guessing, Stan, there was a point across the four or five or six Bob Dylans that we all know where you listened early and often. Oh look, I'm the gener I'm the I'm that generation when he was uh you know, making it big for the first time and everybody was you know, I was in school. Um I can't tell you the number of nights we sat around in the dorm listening. Yeah. I had someone say to this morning, I don't get it. Why is it literature 
Explain to us from where you sat and where I sat where it was the cadence and the pace. There were many other people doing what Bob Dylan did, but he did it with a certain cadence, particularly in the two early Bob Dylans. Well, you know, I, look, I started school at a, at, a, at a small college in Pennsylvania, Franklin and Marshall, and remember going to the English teacher with lyrics from a Bob Dylan song because we were discussing poetry. Mm-hmm. And the teacher had never seen anything from Bob Dylan before, and he just sat there stunned by, by the beauty and, yeah. by, like you said, the cadence, the rhythm, um, and, and the feeling, the emotion that was behind the words. Yeah. And we'll get here to the fiscal policy in a moment. I would just suggest, folks, within that era, the only thing that approaches it was Mr. Simon and Mr. Garfunkel's bookends, which was the same cadence and pace. Stan Collender, we need to bookend an election into the morning after. In the morning after, are we going to shut our government down? Probably not the morning after, but (laughs) excuse me. but uh, it could be within about uh, four weeks of the election. That is, you know, the next, wow. the next co- continuing resolution expires December 9th, and it's not clear that they're going to have enough time to do much of anything. So I would be willing to bet they, they do a one-week continuing resolution to get to about the 16th of December. One and week. At that point, one week. <laughs> um, and, and at that point, um, that's when all hell will break loose in Washington again if there's going to be a big budget fight this year. Let's talk about uh, the definition of progress, Stan. Uh, we almost had a government shutdown, but we averted it by a matter of days mm-hmm. a few weeks ago, not hours. I guess you can call that progress. Um, I suppose. David, how come every time you and I talk, it's always about a shutdown? <laughs> I'm happy for the Dylan news infusing this, yes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, th- what they did was basically punt the decision till December. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're not out of the woods yet, uh, especially if there are going to be some longer-term decisions. A lot will depend on uh, the election results. Uh, if the Democrats take over the, the House and Senate and the White House, Republicans may decide they want to try to do something in, uh, you know, in December to, uh, to get their point across. So uh, while they, they've still got control of both houses <coughs> – excuse me again um, – so just don't start a lot of this sniffing. Up on, yeah, no, I'm not going to sniff into a microphone. I promise you. But uh, um, this this is very much up in the air. I mean, the uncertainty. Uh, in fact, I I, I did a, tw- a tweet the other day saying, you know, I, I I'm grateful that there's only three weeks until the election or so, but I'm not sure it's going to be much better after the election. I think the uncertainty coming out of Washington is going to be bad unless there's a a wave that no one's anticipating. It's going to be narrow majorities in both houses with a uh, you know, with, with a president who may not be in, be able to control what's going on. So it's going to be probably two more years of talking shutdowns and periodic debt ceiling fights and those types of things. 25 days, Stan, but who is counting? Let me ask you lastly here just about whether or not we will see a return to regular order when it comes to budgeting anytime soon, no matter what happens here in the election. Is there a, is there a way you see us getting back to a place where Congress is going through the budget process as it's supposed to go through the budget process? Well, look, I hate to sound like Bill Clinton, but it depends what you mean by regular order. This is regular order now. I don't think you're going to see regular appropriations done anytime soon. Um, or, I mean, look, it's been two decades since we've had all the appropriations done by the time the fiscal year began. And I'm not sure you're ever going to see a budget come out of Congress again. I guess we're going to have to leave it there. It's too short. Stan, we've got, to lo- we got to have longer time next time. We're going to talk about the fiscal derby. Uh, coming up, Stan Collender with Corvus Communication. David, that's sobering. Like he's got it right down to December nine. Yeah, I mean, unbelievable. Down to a date. Unfortunately, I've seen a few reports that agree with Mr. Collender. Yeah. Thanks to Greg Vallier, a scathing note yesterday. 
about, oh yeah, there's after the first Tuesday of November. <laughs> Mr. Villiers didn't have a lot of joy to share on that uh, moment. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.